In the book of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. And if you've been coming for a few weeks, you know that we've been in the, the uh, deep end of the swimming pool theologically. We've talked about election and predestination, all sorts of really tough, complicated things to understand. And I'm really grateful that today we've got a breath of fresh air. We're going back to the fundamentals. Faith, hope, and love. Amen? Faith, hope, and love. And I think that when you look around at what's happening, the seismic social changes that have happened in our world over the past week, it really is good to go back to the fundamentals. It really is good to remind ourselves of those three cardinal Christian virtues that have held the church together for the last 2,000 years. And let me just point out that God has always allowed his church to face, uh, to face titanic struggles. In the book of Acts, in the early church, God allowed his church to face persecution. They had to flee for their lives. He allowed them to face famine. They had to share to get by. The church was ostracized and put out of the synagogues, and their families wouldn't talk to them. They had to connect, or they wouldn't be connected in society. They had to give up land. They lost their possessions. Things were confiscated from them. They had to share. The church faced earthquakes. The Apostle Paul faced shipwrecks. And he allowed the the very hands that were writing the Bible to be bitten by a snake. I mean, God allows hardships to come our way. Bandits, demons, false teachers, and the Roman Empire above all of it with a totalitarian rule. God can grow his church. He can bless his church. God can and will protect his church and and unify his church through the struggles. So I want us to be careful as the world is responding in so many different ways. I want us to be careful to go back to the fundamentals. Faith, hope, and love. If our response over the next month, two months, three months is to, to just exude, to just bring and breathe faith, hope, and love to the world, we're serving our purpose as a church. I'm going to pray, and then we will get into God's Word together. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would bless us as a church. I ask that you would fill us with your Spirit. I ask that you would protect us and guard us and grow us spiritually. And Lord, as we are dealing with big changes in our society, I pray that you would help us to find our voice as a congregation, uh, both to be a blessing to those in our congregation and to those in the world. I pray that you would help us to know what it means to walk by faith, to be filled with love, and to never let go of hope. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, are you there in the book of Ephesians chapter 1? The the church in general had some pretty big struggles, but I've told you before that in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul had some unique challenges. There was a riot in the theater that lasted hours when they found out that their economy was dipping because of the gospel. The Apostle Paul said in the book of 1 Corinthians 15 that he had to fight wild beasts in Ephesus. Now that probably doesn't mean literally, it probably means that's what it felt like. Take me to the zoo, put me in the lion enclosure, that's what it felt like when I was in Ephesus. I mean it was hard work that was opposed, there was so much turmoil um, in Ephesus. And so calling this church back to faith, hope, and love is one way the Apostle Paul studied them and gave them their bearings. And so in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul continues to share his prayer. He says this, 
For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And we kind of pause a run-on sentence there because we're going to take this paragraph apart in the weeks ahead. The first thing you can write down in your notes is this, faith, faith, publicly profess Jesus is Lord. Publicly profess Jesus is Lord. The Apostle Paul is grateful because of the faith that the church in Ephesus has displayed and is displaying. And this is a chance for so many people in our world today to realize just how limited we are to control the things that threaten us and to respond to the things that could transform our world. And I think for a lot of people, this could remind them that there is a supernatural realm. There is a God. He has a plan. And that plan is named Jesus Christ. And maybe some, for the first time, are ready to profess Jesus is Lord as they face their own limitations. And many others like us who have walked with the Lord for years, it's time to do it again. It's time to not let our hearts give way to fear or to let panic grip us, but to publicly profess our faith that, hey, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's still true. How can we encounter God? How can we know him personally? The answer is only through faith. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith is required to understand God and to encounter him. Faith is required to encounter God. And faith must be publicly professed. Some people assume faith is automatically irrational or unscientific, and I would say that's false. There's plenty of evidence that our faith is true and reasonable. We have, for example, the historical accuracy of the book of Acts, where Luke, the doctor, wrote down uh, his entire journey and basically the, the whole growth of the early church. He interviewed key witnesses. He explored everything thoroughly, and, and he wrote this to a friend who was skeptical. And so we have historical accuracy. We also have fulfilled prophecies in the Old Testament that detailed the uh, events that would unfold hundreds of years before they happened. We also have unlikely converts to the faith. The Apostle Paul was going house to house, destroying the church, and then the gospel stopped him in his tracks, and he gave his life to the very person who he refused to believe in. The very half-brother of Jesus, James, was convinced that Jesus was the risen Lord. So we have unlikely converts, but most of all, we have the resurrection accounts of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the eyewitnesses. We have the Roman soldiers who were bribed. We have an empty tomb. And we have the witnesses who ate and talked to Jesus after the resurrection, and then the many who saw him ascend to the right hand of the Father. We believe by faith, but our faith does have plenty of evidence. And I want you to know that the Bible, in fact, welcomes doubters and skeptics. In the... Um, in the town of Berea, it says that they investigated every day to see if what the Apostle Paul said was true. And maybe that should be your heart. Are you willing to investigate to see if this faith is true? And as a church, we take your question seriously. That's how I came to faith. I showed up to meet with the pastor who was reaching out to me, and I had a legal pad full of questions every time I sat down with him. 
So the Bible welcomes doubters and skeptics, and our church takes your questions very seriously. But faith is required if you are to encounter God. The central theme of history and of truth itself is a person, the person Jesus Christ, in whom are all the treasures and riches of wisdom, the Bible says. So do you know Jesus? Knowing Jesus is equivalent to knowing truth. Knowing Jesus is equivalent to knowing God. Do you know him? And if so, have you professed him publicly? Have you publicly professed that Jesus is Lord? Jot this down. Have you been baptized after your conversion? The Apostle Paul says here, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this was a public thing. They publicly professed their faith. The Apostle Paul had heard about it. He was there. He saw it. And their faith continued to grow. Hey, have people in your life heard about your faith? Do those who are closest to you know that you are a born-again follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you told anybody uh, that you are, in fact, a follower of Jesus Christ? I'll never forget uh, Dennis Parney, who's here this morning, his baptism. It was one of the most heartwarming testimonies that I've ever heard. And it's been a while since I showed this before. It was kind of like mandatory viewing, like every other month for a while there. But Dennis, we're going to show your story again here. Check this out. I started attending Harvest last June, and um, something really wonderful happened to me. I had never experienced that in my, in my life. And it was a sermon given by Pastor Ryan, and he wrote it for me, although he didn't know it. But have you ever had that feeling where you, I'm sure some of you have had that feeling, you've left this church and heard a sermon, you felt it was just, it was written for you, and it, it's, just, it's just a wonderful, wonderful feeling. And I don't remember, I searched and searched, and I don't remember the exact title of the sermon, but it was about Judgment Day. And I really put myself into that story. The day that I'm, I was going to go in front of God, our great God, the judge, and basically he's going to say, Dennis, how do you plead, guilty or not guilty? And I'm going to plead guilty, guilty of all my sins. Jesus was there, and Jesus said, Dennis, you're in the book, the book of life. And I looked back at God and said, I'm with him. (laughs) And that's all. When Pastor Ryan said that, something went through my body. I was reborn. And my wife looked at me, and I don't know what she was thinking, but it was an exciting time. It really was. And the, I just wanted to, um, I wanted to go out to the 127th and Harlem and stand in the corner and say, I'm with him, you know, but I didn't, of course. But uh, we... We got in the car. I, didn't, I was so excited to tell her my story in that we didn't even stop for cookies or coffee that day, which I really enjoy. Didn't even get the car started. And she said, Dennis, I've known you a long time. I've never seen that look on your face. I said, when Pastor Ryan said, I'm with him, I knew the Holy Spirit entered in. It was just a wonderful feeling. We went home. And it was weeks after that that every opportunity I had 
I would say, I'm with him. I'm with him. I'm with him. And my wife would just smile. She knew the Holy Spirit had a grasp of me. It just, I thank God. I thank, I thank Harvest. You know, Jesus paid a, a big price for my sin. Now today, I am, I'm truly with him. Thank you. Still a classic, Dennis, and I appreciate your heart. I appreciate your love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can say, I've heard of your faith, right? We've all heard of his faith. And the question for you is, uh, have others heard of your faith? Have you publicly professed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Maybe you can't do it as well as Dennis did it. He gets like an A plus for his speech, right? Um, but have you at least gone public? Have you told people you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? And I'd like to invite you to decide to get baptized. I'd like to invite you to write up your little speech and, and to go public. And that goes for everybody in this room and for everybody watching online. Have you gone public? Have you said, I'm with him? I'm with him. Now, I, I know a lot of you, for a while, the barrier has been, well, I'm just a little nervous about getting up in front of crowds, and maybe if it was a smaller gathering, I could do it. Your wish has been granted. <laughs> I mean, and this window could close fast, but our next baptism service is going to be the most private, smallest group. There will be probably a handful of people in this section, and if that has been your complaint, your complaint is soon to go away. So if you don't do it now, all right, then is that really what's been holding you back? But I would just really challenge you to nail that down and to say, look, I'm with him and I'm going public. Number one, faith. Publicly profess Jesus is Lord. He says this, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints and your love toward all the saints. Jot this down, love, love. And what exactly is love? There's so many different definitions we can give. You know, there's so many different songs that have been singing about what is love? Is this love? Do I know? You know, like what, what is love? Love, if you, if you look through the book of Ephesians and what the Apostle Paul has said here, here's what love means. It means pursue unity, equality, and maturity together. That's what he's after. Pursuing unity, equality, and maturity together. So question, how can we experience community? It's a longing everyone has to connect, to be known, to know others, to love other people. How can, how can we experience community? How can we feel known and cared for and plugged in? We want that. We all long for that. And when we don't have it, maybe you don't have it. Maybe you feel alone in life. Maybe you feel disconnected. Maybe you feel isolated and cut off. We're certainly all going to struggle with that for the next few months. Maybe you wish you had more friends. Maybe you wish you had a mentor who could just challenge you and sharpen you and, and grow you in the faith. Maybe you've been longing for that. Maybe you feel like you have so much to give and you really don't have anybody younger who you're pouring into. These are all the ways that we desire to connect. Love is the answer. As we pursue unity and equality and maturity together, we will get that sense of community. We will feel as though we are becoming uh, not just, sometimes I feel like churches can be kind of a, a, a bag of marbles. Like we're all together, but we're not really connected. Cold, brittle, bouncing off each other. Um, but also, if, if we get it right, we could be more like a bag of grapes. You know, like we're all just intertwined with each other. And because of that, there's something alive and nourishing that's happening. 
In Ephesians 4, 1-3, the Apostle Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Listen, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It says here that the unity comes from the Spirit. This is crucial to our understanding of community. We are already one in Christ. We don't create that unity. The Holy Spirit creates that unity. It's our job to preserve that unity, to protect that unity, and to enjoy that unity. That's what we are to do. It's imperative, therefore, if we are already one in Christ, that our love reaches across lines that could divide us from each other. Those lines could include racial lines, ethnic lines, economic walls, barriers to fellowship and love. Sometimes it's sad to find hatred still, resentment still, discrimination still, prejudice still, not only in the hearts of people around us, but in the hearts of people in our church. And brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. But listen, if, if you have struggled with that, if you would like to cure the own hatred and bias that you have in your heart, the way that that's going to happen is not for you to be like, all right, that, I'm going to finally do it. I'm going to finally walk up and I'm going I'm to reach out to that person and I'm going to create a bond here. No, no, no. The way to overcome those things is to realize you're already bound up to that person for eternity. You'll be together forever. We will be together forever. How foolish it is to bring a hateful, vengeful, condescending heart with you toward anyone who's going to be with you in heaven. It goes against love. People who talk about those people, people who look down on those people, people who discriminate against those people don't understand that to God, you are one of those people. People unworthy to inherit eternal life. Because Jesus reached across time and space and history and heaven to come and to love you, you should do the same for others. Love means to pursue unity, to enjoy unity. The Apostle Paul here says, I've heard of your love toward all the saints. And he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He's saying this to Gentiles. Do you know how much racism there was and cultural elitism and economic uh, uh, barriers back then in the early church? I mean, the Apostle Paul growing up wouldn't even eat with someone who was a different race from him. And now he's thanking God. Thank you, God, for these people. That's Christ's love in the heart. And the love of Jesus must melt away all of your bias, must melt away all of your racism, must melt away all of your elitism, because unity is love. Now he's so grateful. Unity, equality. Grace levels the playing field. Because the Apostle Paul, who probably had the whole, he probably had the first five books at least of the Old Testament memorized. He was a Pharisee, all right? He knew his Bible. He had all the Iwana badges growing up, all right? All right, all of them. 
And yet he could, he could look upon these people who had known about Jehovah God, the, the, the Old Testament uh, God, you know, with, and they knew about him, some of them, for how long? Three years. And he's like, you know what? I've heard of your faith, and I'm so thankful for you. Really? He's not condescending. He, he realizes the equality in Christ. Nobody deserves the riches that Christ offers us. And when you realize that we're all equal before God, you'll be filled with love toward other people. We're tempted to go in two directions. We're tempted to assume that we have a greater value than other people, and with that comes pride and arrogance and condescension and bully leadership and elitism, and, and we all struggle with pride. How are you doing? Are you winning that battle in community? Not, not looking down on other people? But then you can take a step in this direction, and you can assume that, that you're less than other Christians. You can fight the battle that I'm, I'm more than, or you can fight the battle that I'm, well, I'm less than, I'm less than. And um, both of those conclusions are lies. If you conclude that you're more than or less than other Christians, those are both lies. And the more that you embrace those lies, the more that you will use those lies to fuel your sin. Different sins over here, if you conclude you're less than other, well, I'm just not as talented or knowledgeable, or I'm just not as this and that envy, envy, self-pity and sadness and sorrow and then sin and sin and you know, and um, you're using a lie to fuel your sin. The only biblical conclusion that we have to arrive at is that we are all equal in Christ, equal debtors to grace, equal heirs to the promises of God. Don't let any lie take root in your heart that you're more than or less than any other Christian. Don't go in that direction. We're the same. We're equal. Unity, equality, and maturity Maturity means we grow stronger together. We learn to serve others. We resolve conflict because we're growing up. Some of the churches in the New Testament weren't beyond baby food. The Apostle Paul had to say to the church in Corinth, I was going to feed you steak, but you're not ready. I'm going to give you the baby food, right? Gerber. And for some Christians, they've been in the faith 10, 20, 30 years, and they're still on baby food because they haven't grown up to maturity. And listen, when I say maturity, be careful I don't mean that you're, you know, doing your devotions and memorizing your verses and going to your Bible study. That's not maturity. A big whole head of Bible facts is not maturity. Maturity shows up in your relationships with other people. We're talking about love. And if you can build and maintain and strengthen healthy relationships, especially when it's hard, you're mature in Christ. That's the test of maturity. It's love. How are you doing at growing up? I saw this funny picture uh, last week about the comparison between a toddler and a T-Rex. Check it out. Toddler, T-Rex versus baby. Earth-shaking vocal cry. Tiny arms. Razor-sharp fingernails. Messy eaters. Awkward gait. Capable of destroying entire house. And I would say that, you know, there's a very similar chart here that could be made for T-Rex versus baby Christian, right? Baby Christian that refuses to grow up, capable of destroying entire church, won't grow up, incapable of resolving conflict. T-Rex. Jot this down. Love means we're striving to know, to care for, and to help others. To help others. We are really entrusted with a love from heaven 
that's foreign to all of creation. The love that Jesus has given to us, listen, brothers and sisters, the love that Jesus has given to us, you will not find on this planet. He knows us to the depths of our darkest, and he loves us to the highest heavens. You will not find a love like that on this planet. It's got to be imported. (laughs) And he puts it in us so that we can then spread that love around. And how do we do that? Well, we strive to know other people. And what an opportunity this is the next few weeks to check on each other, to check in with each other, especially those who are more higher risk. Hey, how you doing? How you doing this week, right? To know. If you don't know, then you can't care. Caring means you hear about someone struggling, you hear about somebody needing something, and you're like, okay, I'm going to respond emotionally to that. I'm going to actually care about that person. And some people stop there. They don't really care about others. They don't really care about those who are higher risk. They don't really care about people who are afraid right now. And then help. You reach out. You reach out. You do something. You take tangible action to actually help somebody else. And that is love. Love doesn't, you know, if you're just here checking your box, like, yeah, I mean, I'm a pretty conversational person on Sundays. I think that people think that I'm pretty friendly. That's not love. Love is you know what's going on with other people. You actually care about it, and you've, you've moved to help them. That's love. So number one, faith publicly professed Jesus is Lord. Number two, love pursue unity, equality, and maturity together. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope, there's hope, to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Faith, hope, love. Jot this down, number three, hope. Rest in your promised inheritance. Rest in your promised inheritance. Faith, have you publicly professed Jesus as Lord? Are you still doing it even in the middle of a social crisis? Love, are you promoting unity and equality? with those around you in this room? Is maturity something you're striving for? And now hope. Is your heart, when you face the future, resting in your promised inheritance? Hope is what puts out the fire of the panic. Hope is the future tense of our faith. Question. How can I face the future with confidence? How can I look ahead? Seems like no one can tell me what's coming financially, medically, That's why the Bible takes us all the way to the end of the end of the story and gives us assurance that the ending is written. How can I know my destiny is secure? How can I know that the end is going to happen? The ideas of destiny, the ideas of fate, the ideas of an ending that we can't avoid are really popular in movies, right? In other words, the end or the future come to bear on the present. And often when that happens, people don't like the destiny that's coming and they're trying to avoid it, right? I picked out a few movies that kind of deal with this idea of fate or destiny. Here's one of them. So, um, You Are My Density. How many of you know what what movie does that come from? Back to the Future, Future, right? And uh, uh, George McFly, right? He's trying to to ask his future wife out and, and he's stumbling over his words and he goes, Lorraine, you are my density. He gets it wrong. Uh, And he's so nervous. And 
That movie's funny because we all know where it's supposed to end. We all know they're supposed to get together, but there's great turmoil because Marty messed it up. And so now he's trying to fix the future. And how funny would that be? You going back in time trying to fix your own future, right? Here's another one. This one was called Minority Report, where Tom Cruise was a uh, law enforcement officer, and he had the ability to see the future through this computer thing. And and what he would do is he ran a department called pre-crime. He saw the crime before you did it. They'd show up to your apartment or house and they'd arrest you. You're under arrest, and then they would list the crime in the future that you're being arrested for. The idea of being able to prevent something that's fated to happen um, filled that movie. It was a pretty interesting one. And here's the last one. Of course, we all know this one, right? Luke, it is your destiny. Join me. No, I'll never join you. The idea that Luke was bound to become you know, the dark side. It was something that he fought against the whole movie. When it comes to the future, often when it comes to the future, people have this feeling like it's already settled. And if there's a bad future coming, then they're filled with all sorts of uh, fear about that. You know, uh, how is this going to end? And they feel like fate is just taking over and they feel powerless to change the end of their story. And then other people feel like, especially when it comes to love, oh, it was destined to be the way that it came together. It was like the stars aligned. And however we respond to the idea of destiny or fate, here's what I would say. God is the only one who can secure your fate. God is the only one who can tell you your future and guarantee that it's going to happen. And it says in Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were at that time before Christ, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, listen, having no hope and without God in the world. Did you hear that? Having no hope. And listen, when you were born into this world, the relationship between you and God was dead. You were born into this world and your destiny was you had no hope and you were without God. Some of you were raised in a Christian environment where they gave you hope. Hey, listen, Jesus is Lord. Stand up, sing that song at VBS. And when you hear the call to faith, you respond. You were saved and you were born again and you received that naturally. And then you were given a hope. Others of you were raised many years and you were never told about Jesus. You never understood it. But listen, I'm here to tell you your destiny, your fate is clearly spelled out in the Bible. If you don't have Christ, you have no hope. And the end of your story is going to be very bad. Here's the wonderful thing. God spoiled the ending. He showed it to you in advance. You're supposed to look into this book and see the ending to your movie, and you're supposed to respond by being like, oh dear, that's horrible. Yes! I'd like a different ending. Yes! What are you going to do about it? The only way you can have hope that your future story will end well is if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you have hope. Then your story will end with an inheritance that is yours forever and ever and ever. And you can live and die without fear. Do you have hope? If so, rest in your promised inheritance. The Bible says here, in verse 17, he's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, there's three different ways that could be interpreted. When it says he's praying that this would happen, he's praying that the church in Ephesus, that they would be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of Christ. 
Now, that could be translated the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, praying that the Holy Spirit would be given to them, and then wisdom and revelation and knowledge would come. It could also be um, a Spirit within you, so that He would give them a Spirit in their hearts where they grow in their knowledge and understanding of Christ. It could also be a Spirit among them, meaning they have a, a community that's filled with this hunger this growth in knowledge and understanding of Christ. All three of those possibilities are very biblical. Only the Holy Spirit can actually give us wisdom and knowledge of Christ from heaven. That's why the Bible is called the sword of the Spirit. The Spirit writes the Bible through human authors. So the Apostle Paul could be asking here that the Spirit would give them new revelation, and frankly, in this book of Ephesians, that prayer was answered. Like this, this letter that was written to them was a spirit of revelation from the Holy Spirit, because we now know that it ended up in the canon. But a spirit of revelation and knowledge within them would mean that you don't just hear the word, but you become doers of the word, like, like James talked about. And then a spirit of wisdom and revelation among them would mean that they're growing and teaching and, and telling each other about Jesus Christ. And, and we should long for that as well. So what we see here is that hope our ability to see the future and, and to know that it's all settled is closely tied into the Holy Spirit's activity to give us truth and knowledge about Jesus Christ. And then when it comes to what happens after that knowledge and wisdom is given, it says in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That, that idea of the eyes being enlightened or the eyes of your heart being opened how many of you remember that song, 2001, Michael W. Smith, Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord? How many of you remember that song, Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord? Open the Eyes of My Heart, I want to see you. I'm not going to sing it. I'm not going to sing it. I want to see you high and lifted up, right? That song came right out of this verse. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. It's a weird thought, hearts having eyes. It's a weird thought that your heart has blink, 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 blink eyes. It's a symbolic way to describe a spiritual reality. The idea that your heart could have eyes that are closed is meant to show you that the way we're born is like this. Our heart, our soul, our spirit is blind. And all, all your life, if you're like, where's God been? How come he's never talked to me? I don't feel like he loved. This is you. This is you. This is you. This is our starting point. This is you. All, all your life, you maybe have been doing this with God, right? And then only Jesus, when you find him, can actually open the eyes of your heart. And then you see him, and then you know him, and then you're enlightened to God. You can see God only through Jesus. And that, that is equivalent to having a knowledge of who Jesus is, what he's done for you at the cross, being born again through faith, being entered into a community of love, then you have a hope of heaven. That's what it means for your eyes to be open. I once was blind, now I can see. So my closing question to you is, jot this down, do you know you're going to heaven? Do you know you're going to heaven? When did Jesus cure your spiritual blindness? When did the eyes of your heart open? Hey, we're back to the fundamentals here. Faith, hope, and love publicly profess Jesus is Lord, pursue unity, equality, and maturity together, and then rest in your promised inheritance. The whole sermon last week was about how heaven is handed to you as an inheritance. 
It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God, and he just gives it to you. And I'd like to close out this message by inviting you to receive the free gift of eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close our eyes and let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I know that there are some here today who have not yet received you as Savior and Lord. There are perhaps some who are viewing this message online and they have not yet received Jesus as Christ and Savior and Lord. And I give them a chance right now to respond to what they've heard by saying this in their own hearts. Father, forgive me for I have sinned. Forgive me for all of my sins, every one of them. Say that in your heart. Tell God that you want forgiveness. And then say this, Jesus, I believe the truth about you. I believe you came into the world, lived the perfect life, died on the cross, and rose again. I believe you rule heaven, and only you can promise me eternal life. Say that. Say that in your heart. Tell him that you believe. Father, I pray that those who invite you to be Savior and Lord today, Jesus, that you would open the eyes of their heart, that for the first time they would look around and see that this is a loving community that accepts sinners who are saved by grace, that they would find the relationship with you and with others that they've been longing for their whole lives, that they would find a love that is foreign to this entire universe, a love, a love that transforms us and a love that promises us eternal life for free. I pray, Lord, that you would help our hearts to rest in the hope that the ending is written. Nothing can change it. Our inheritance is in heaven is secure, and we will soon arrive safely on those eternal shores. For now, help us to get back to the fundamentals, faith, hope, and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.